Brother James, thank you for filling in while Brother Stuart, Miss Lee Ellen are on vacation. Miss Carolyn, you too. It's um some of you guys, I don't know if you know this, but when Brother James was in Pine Bluff, he was the music minister at their church. And so it's kind of a really neat legacy to be able to see uh, Miss Sherry and Brother James did that for a long time, and now Brother Stewart and Miss Lee Ellen are carrying on that legacy here at Denver Street, and, and we're just so thankful and appreciative of you being able to fill in. They might have had it backwards. <laughs> I love that. I love that we're able to pass on our legacies to our children. And that we get to see that carrying onward. And as children, I love that we get to carry that onward. And celebrate 80th birthdays this weekend. Um, my grandma celebrated her 63rd birthday. My mom celebrated her 48th birthday. Some of you are doing the math to find out where I came from. And yeah, they were both really, really young. Um, I was filling the gap. I'm 30, so there, there's the full picture. It was pretty special being able to be there and, and have my grandma pour into my children's lives and hop on the boat and be rowdy with my family and celebrate everything that they've gone through. It's a little bit scary when you hear that your grandma is 63. I don't know what it was about this weekend. I just realized my grandma's getting old. Some of you are offended by that because Lavella just turned 80 and I called a 63-year-old woman in the prime of her life old. That's all right. It's all in perspective, isn't it? My brother's always tell me that I'm getting old. They made fun of me because my hairline's going back, and I told them that's just the mark of wisdom. If you spent some time in a book, you might lose some hair as well. We're all getting old, aren't we? We're all making our way to the, the finish line, aren't we? I have to make sure I wear a hat when I go outside because my scalp gets burnt. There's no longer anything naturally protecting me from the sun. One of the fun parts about spending time with my family is this. I don't come from a saved family. So the conversations that we have, I can tell I've been called to preach. Sometimes I doubt it whenever I'm here with you all just because there's so much wisdom around me. But when I'm with my family, it seems like there's three or four sermons that end up coming out. Over the past couple of years, I've been able to watch my family grow closer and closer to being ready to hear the gospel, to being able to accept it. They've heard it, but being able to understand it. You guys have heard many sermon illustrations about this in the past about the different conversations that we've had. How, and, and it's really just a picture of the world. The world that thinks that they know everything and has decided, 
well, I just, I think I need to figure out this religion stuff for myself. And indeed you do. You need to figure it out for yourself. You, as Christians, should figure it out for yourself. But here's the problem that we run up against. My family has figured it out all wrong because they're using their mind and their own authority to be the determining factor to figure it all out. What do I have that's different? I'm not trying to figure it out. In my pursuit of trying to understand what it means to know God, if there is a God, and all of these other questions has been based in what has been revealed over history. Thousands and thousands of years we have a God that is pursuing humanity and wants them to know Him. He's revealed Himself to humanity through the miraculous recorded throughout history. We discussed that some a few weeks ago in looking at the marvel of a worldwide flood. God wants you to know Him and He's making it possible. Beyond that, outside of such... Um, Natural revelation, God has revealed Himself in a special way. In these last times, the book of Hebrews says He's given us the Word. What's different between trying to understand God from a perspective of having Him show Himself to us and trying to figure it out for ourselves? Well, the difference is if you're trying to figure it out for yourself, you'll never be wrong. In fact, you can continue to live your life however you want because, well, the real God you're pursuing is yourself. When we pursue a God that is revealing Himself to humanity, we come against His Word many times and we find out, I was wrong. And this is the marvel. This is the, the turning point. This is what my family needs more than anything. To be able to say, I was wrong. I can't figure it out on my own. I need God to show me who He is. In all of these conversations that I've been able to enjoy, we come across a problem. What does a loving God have any business to do with judgment and condemnation and casting people to hell for all eternity? Such terrifying and troubling thoughts not only pick the brain, but they, they make us question what we know about God. My goodness, what about the suffering that we experience in this world? This morning, as we prepare to turn to the Word of God, our goal is to be able to answer, and this is a difficult business, and I want you to understand that it's difficult. What is, I believe, the capstone mark of a mature Christian? When we were looking at Hebrews chapter 6, we made a big business about what does it mean to be mature. I'm contending with you now that the capstone mark, the keystone, the, the most essential point, what really reveals a mature Christian and an immature Christian is what kind of a, buckle in, theology of suffering do we have? Theology of suffering. How do we view suffering? There's a lot of different perspectives that can be taken with this. There's some that will say suffering means that you're living in sin and the reason they're suffering is because you're doing something wrong. There's some say ignore the suffering altogether and pretend it doesn't exist. 
Loved ones, neither one of those perspectives is in the Bible. As we've been making our way through Hebrews, we've just finished Hebrews chapter 11, looking at the great examples of faith that are examples to us, telling us to push onward. We're moving past chapter 10, which is an encouragement to Christians to continue to persevere in the faith. In fact, the author even says, we have confidence that you are not those that shrink away, but those that preserve their souls. Are we those that preserve their souls? Are we those that are able to endure? Because the mark of being able to endure is being able to look at suffering, know where it comes from, and know what we're supposed to do with it. I have a secret. It's not going away. As we gathered together this morning, the news of a, of a brother passing away this past week, Remembering that we're all growing older. There is no exception or excuse that suddenly takes away the grief that we feel and makes it all better. There is sorrow while we were on, are on earth, waiting to be reunited with people that we know are in glory. There's celebration because we know where they are going. But there is grief because we're not there with them. What are we supposed to do with such suffering? This morning, I want to look at a theology of suffering and see what we do with it. First, I'll tell you that we will do so by running. We will do so by responding. And finally, by rallying. And I'll tell you what each of those words mean. First, let us pray and turn to the Word of God. Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege to come together this morning. God, I thank you for the people that you have brought together. God, I pray that you would bless us this morning. We are covering a difficult topic. We're covering a topic that we find in your word this morning that provokes us. So I come to you humbly asking that you would give us hearts that are able to listen able to read, and able to respond, God, that you would give us a humble heart ready to receive your word, that you'd protect us from our own hard-heartedness. I pray as the psalmist did in Psalm 118.19, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might be able to behold the awesome truth found in your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Our text this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. I'll invite you, if you haven't already, to go ahead and open your Bibles, turn there, and make sure what I'm saying is actually inside this book. Because if it's not in this book, you have no business listening to me. The Bible says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted 
In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I said we'll begin this morning by looking at a theology of suffering, how we might develop it by running. By running. This is the main point or thrust of Hebrews up to this point, that we would run with endurance to the finish line of life. We would run with endurance to the point that either Christ will return or we will be called into heaven with Him. I'm looking forward to one of those alternatives. Personally, I would like to be around whenever Jesus comes back. Um, That might be my own pride. I pray that He lets me have it anyway. I'd love to be here for that day that the trumpets would sound from heaven, that the kingdom would open up and everyone would be able to behold Christ riding in on a white stallion. I think it would be amazing. I read the Bible and I wonder, how could everyone in the whole world possibly see all of this? It seems like we're getting closer. Because now with TikTok, you can see things happening all over the world. I think it's coming soon. I pray it's coming soon. Biblically speaking, I can say with confidence that end times have been ever since the church was formed. That's when the end times began, about 2,000 years ago. So we're in the end times. I can say that with confidence. But we're supposed to be running. Not sitting around waiting. We're supposed to be running. And from the perspective of the author of Hebrews, we're supposed to be running despite suffering, despite persecution, despite people. Look how extreme it is just for a second in chapter 11. Verse 36. Mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, being stoned. And this is the one that gets me. Sawn into two pieces. And we're not talking about that kind of suffering, are we? Indeed, there's still suffering. So how do we view suffering? In context, I believe it's right to say that we're talking about persecution. We're talking about how do we respond to people rejecting us because of our faith, coming against us because of our faith. I don't know if you paid attention to what month it is, but we're definitely being rejected because of our faith. 
Because we believe what the Bible has to say about the way that people are designed and created. Businesses that stand by this are cowering in the face of worldly powers rather than looking towards God. Let me fill in the gaps. June is Gay Pride Month. What business doesn't have a Gay Pride marketing event right now? Persecution against the church is coming. It exists in a very real way in our colleges. Loved ones, if you're a part of this church, then you are associated with the Baptist Missionary Association of America. That means that you are an owner of Central Baptist College in Conway. Central Baptist College is a a private-run Christian college. And it's a great institution with high academic standards of excellence They receive federal money that assists students to pay for their scholarship, the Pell Grant. And they are running in jeopardy at the moment of losing the ability to receive Pell Grant funding for students because they will not adopt a non-discrimination statement that says that they do not discriminate based on sexual preference. How backwards would it be if a Christian university went out and said, girls can play in men's sports and men can play in girls' sports? But the government's saying you don't have a choice. This is the kind of persecution that the church is facing in the world today. It's all around us. It's prevalent. It's there. If you see it, it's because you're... Your eyes have been opened and you're pursuing what God has told us to be pursuing. It's easy to be blinded by this and say, well, this is just some political nonsense going off in the background. I'm the least political person that I know of. From a Christian perspective, the influence that is being exerted against Christian institutions is painful. It would be our modern equivalent of stones being chained and being sawn in two. This is Christian persecution, and what is the church to do about it? I told you, not just that you have a share in Central Baptist College, but you are an owner. If you're a member of the church, you are an owner of Central Baptist College. What are you supposed to do with it? Our text begins by saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. You know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to lay aside the burdens that leave you encumbered by this world because the reason we're concerned what the world might say is we're worried that we might lose federal funding at the collegiate level or we're worried that our friends might reject us or we're worried that somebody might accuse us of being a bigot. Such weights do not belong in the hearts of somebody that has pursued Christ. I don't want to be called a bigot. I don't want anyone to think I'm a bigot. But I would challenge anyone who would call me that to come and spend time with me and my family and see the way that I love those that I disagree with. 
Come and watch the way that I love my brother. Come and watch the way that I love the people in my life that reject God and tell me I'm a bigot. I think they're wrong. I think they're condemned. I think they're unrepentant and I think they need Christ just as much as I do. That doesn't stir me up to provoking them to wrath. That stirs me up to provoking them to compassion because my heart is compassionate to them because I know where they're going and I know where they're heading and I'm going to miss them. We develop a theology of suffering by running not being distracted by everything that lays around us, but running with the mission that has been given to the church by God to pursue with compassion the heart of Christ. Not just in our own lives, but in a way that it pours out of us in such a way that it is infectious. That those that were called by God would see the love in us and that through God's grace they would come to know Him as a Savior. They would come to know the transformation that is taking place in our hearts. It begins with you not being distracted. Laying aside every weight. But our text goes on in verse 1. It says, not just laying aside every weight, but it says, and sin, which clings so closely. Listen, if there's sin, how effective do you think you are at laying aside every burden? Well, here's the great problem with, with the church, isn't it? Everyone says, I'd love to be a part of a church, but they're all just a bunch of hypocrites. Do you know how you, you know, you should always take a Baptist with you to the bar. That way you have a designated driver. The joke goes, you should always bring two Baptists with you because if you bring one, he'll drink all the beer. Now, this is a joke, right? What makes it funny is there's a lot of truth to it. What makes it funny is there's a whole lot of truth to it and the world laughs. This is, as we looked at verse, chapter 11, verse 36, the mocking. The church mocking Christians that say that they believe something vehemently, say that they believe something with extreme conviction, and they go out and they live their life in a completely different way. You'd be better off confessing what you actually believe. You'd be better off confessing what the Bible actually teaches, what you're actually convicted about. Because then when you walk around, you won't destroy your testimony by living like a hypocrite. You'd be better off just being honest. Because God doesn't have any secrets with you, does He? He knows where you're at when nobody else is looking. He knows what you're thinking when no one else can hear you. I was talking with my grandma. My mom was going to bring a boyfriend over this weekend as we were celebrating her birthday. And we were on the phone. And I told grandma, can you just tell her not to? I'm really tired of my three and two-year-old meeting a new guy every time grandma's around. And my grandma said, oh, calm down, calm down. It's just a friend. And I said, you're right, grandma. That was an inside thought that became an outside thought. Those are the worst kinds of thoughts, aren't they? because I can't say I'm sorry because I meant every word of it. But if maturity would have kicked in five seconds later, I would have said, 
I need to hold my tongue right now. I think we need to focus on saying and confessing what we actually believe. If you're not compelled by something being sin in your life, then, then you're not compelled by it. I trust in the Holy Spirit to make sure that we're all aligned on what's right and what's wrong. Because we do have an absolute authority between us, and it's not me. It's not the preacher. It's not all of the preachers in town getting together and figuring it out. It's the Holy Spirit of God that dwells inside of each believer that's capable of transforming their life in an effectual and prevalent way. And if we disagree on something, that means the Holy Spirit hasn't brought us to unity on it, and I think I can trust Him more than I can trust myself. Now, do we believe that? Do you believe that you can trust God more than you trust yourself? This is what we should agree on. Can someone say amen to that? I trust God more than I trust myself. That's true. I seek His unity in decisions that I make because He's capable of bringing unity not only to the church, but to the people of God and the church at large. And, and by trusting Him and the unity that comes about by Him, we can run with endurance the race that we have been given to pursue this great problem because there's a problem that comes with suffering. Why should we suffer? Come on, you're not telling me you've never thought of this. You've never sat back and said, why should I suffer? You've never said, why should I have to experience this? Why all this talk about the necessity of hope in light of being sawn in two? Is God not capable of rescuing me from it? Is our God so small that He can't rescue us from our suffering? Stirred up Christians would be yelling no right now. Is our God so small that He cannot rescue us from our suffering? I didn't think so. We serve a big God, a mighty God, a powerful God, a God who is capable of taking all of our suffering and laying it aside. As a matter of fact, this is the promise that He's given to anyone that would put their faith in Him. That we will be in a place where there are no more tears. No more suffering, no more anguish, no more osteoporosis, no more hip surgeries, no more blood transfusions, no more dialysis. No more being 60 pounds overweight so that my bones hurt whenever so I'm more than 60 pounds overweight. Shh. Man, I'm already 30 and I'm struggling to keep up with my kids. I've got to get this in order. I pray God would help me. I'm not capable of getting it back in order out of a lack of discipline. I can hear Andy's wife already telling me that I can, I just won't. If I can't get it in order out of a lack of discipline, I look forward to the day of promise when it will all be set in order and I'll be given a spiritual body. Perfect and without any of the suffering. That doesn't help me much right now though, does it? doesn't help you much right now, does it? The Bible gives us an answer that because we have this cloud of witness around us that testify to the creation of the world and the nature that it was created through and the person whom it was created by 
and by which the same person perseveres through providence all of these things, that I have hope in suffering because I have an example in Jesus Christ. This is verse 2. The founder and the perfecter of my faith. What did Jesus do? But he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now currently seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How marvelous. And my God, in looking at suffering, my big God, my God who's capable of setting it all aside, he doesn't just not set it aside, but this is what my God has done. He came and endured such suffering alongside me, even though he was created perfect. He's made holy because he's creator. He's separate from creation because he's the one that put it all in motion. He came and dwelled on earth and experienced suffering, the same suffering that I'm experiencing today, the same rejection that I'm going through today, so that he might be able to identify with you. Through the book of Hebrews so far, we've already seen what a great testimony this has created in the life of Christ. That that he's been made high priest because of this. Not just a high priest who's unempathetic, but one that has compassion and knows what you've gone through. One that comes to us with confidence. The book of Hebrews is rich with, with what has been accomplished with the incarnation of Christ. But more than that, he's given me an example to follow. And so I have confidence to say that my suffering is not pointless. Pay attention. Jesus was made perfect by such suffering. That's chapter 4, I believe. Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus was made perfect by such suffering. I have an example to pursue. But some suffering seems pointless. And the truth is, some suffering is pointless. Ultimately, suffering, anguish, Everything we experience in life is a consequence of living in a fallen world. People who believe that God is somehow going to just save everyone regardless of what they confess so long as they live a decent and good life miss the fact that there's suffering in the world today. If God was going to simply save everybody regardless of what they believed or what they confessed, so long as they lived a decent and moral life, don't you think he'd take it one step further and save them now and prevent them from having to endure temptation, suffering, sin? I do. That's not the example that he set for us, though. Instead, he gives us the example of Christ who endures all of these things and though tempted by sin, did not sin, lived a sinless life that he might be the sacrifice for us. And so our example that we look to is some suffering is pointless because we live in a sinful world. The reason we have cancer diagnoses, diagnoses, who cares? The reason I'm going bald. I'm going to have a full head of hair in in glory. You guys won't even be able to recognize me. Just, Just wait. The reason people die is because we live in a fallen world. The consequence of sin entered the world by the volitional or or the, the decision of man. 
to rebel against God and to do what He told us not to do, what was right. And in such rebellion, that sinfulness entered into man and has been passed on from father to son from the beginning of creation. I am a sinner because my dad was a sinner. I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sin. My daughter is a sinner because I am a sinner. My son is a sinner because I am a sinner. They inherited my sinfulness and were born sinners. This is the condition of every single person born since Adam. You were born a sinner. Guys, listen, the thing about sin is it can't be covered up. It has a debt that needs to be paid. Paul writes in Romans that the wages of sin is death. That means that there's nothing that you can do to cover up your inherited sinfulness. You say, well, I've been a decent and good person. Doesn't matter. You were born a sinner. There's nothing you can do to cover that stain up. That sin stuck. And it's permeated the whole world around you. That condition of sin is in the grass. It's in the trees. It's in the air that we breathe. Our whole world is corrupted by sinfulness. The reason when we look forward to heaven, the reason God says He's bringing us a new earth and a new heaven is because this old earth is going to perish with everyone that doesn't place their faith in Christ. The whole earth will perish. Because it needs to be purified, it needs to be cleansed. So that those that have put their faith in Christ and have been purified by a perfect sacrifice that has been established through Jesus' example might be able to experience a world in their new bodies with their full head of hair and everything else, a world where they can walk in grass unencumbered by sin. I'm looking forward to finding out what crabgrass looks like without sin. Maybe the whole thing's sin, I don't know. What kind of a God is it that needs to accomplish good things by subjecting people to bad things? Hey, listen to this. Loved ones, you've probably heard someone say this or perhaps even said it in your life. I am getting frustrated with this response and I want you to hear me. How many times have you heard somebody say that you're suffering right now, but God means it for good? What kind of a God is it that wants you to suffer for good? I mean, think about it this way. Just, just work it out in your own mind. Think it out for a second. I've experienced situations in my life where I've experienced suffering, and looking back, I went, that was necessary so that I could wind up where I'm at now. Such suffering was good for me. And I know you've all experienced that. You've lived twice the life that I have, so I'm sure of it. Do you look back at that moment when you were suffering and go, man, I sure am glad I got laid off. Oh boy, I sure am glad I got in that car accident. Nobody says that. If you did, you'd be nuts. We'd have you nuts. We'd have you institutionalized. Nobody says, I'm glad I went through that suffering, even if it resulted in good. 
Sure, I got laid off, but I found a better job. I'm pursuing my calling. I'm doing what I was supposed to do all along. Do I look back at getting laid off and go, sure, I'm glad I went through that? I do not. Our suffering does not become good. God is able to redeem suffering in the same way that He redeems a wicked man, you and I, born in a sinful condition. He redeems us that have no good in us, and He gives us purpose. He gives us purpose that might make looking at it a little bit easier. This holds into focus the fact that suffering exists ultimately as a consequence of living in a sinful world. It forces us to remember that we are longing for something that is better. We are longing for something that is removed from such sinfulness. It gives us encouragement while we endure, and it helps us to see the way that we refine our view of heaven. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in the same way death spread to all men because all have sinned. So therefore, I no longer look to this world for hope. I look to Christ for my hope. I consider Him who endured from sinners this hostility, that I may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And I remember that God has called me a son. Now listen, I said we would develop a theology of suffering first by running. Do you understand what I mean by that yet? I lay aside the distractions, I lay aside the complaints, and I simply stick to the plan that has been given to me because my plan is not better than God's plan. This is our theology of suffering. Why do I suffer in this world? Point one, because it forces me to rely on God. How dangerous would it be if I lived in a world where there wasn't such persecution against Christians? Do you think I would have any zeal for the kingdom of God then? Probably not. It'd be too darn easy. This is what corrupted the church in the first century, isn't it? Emperor Constantine made the church the national religion of Rome. Everyone in the Roman Empire was suddenly a Christian. And it was simply too easy. All the branches and denominations and all the, the stuff that we're frustrated with today, the seeds were planted then when the church was infiltrated by people who were not Christians. Not in spiritual sense. They were Christians by name only. They were not only nominal, but they simply went because that's what their emperor told them to do. Listen, they were obeying their emperor and not their Lord. Because of such suffering that exists in the world, I rely on God. It would be easy to stand up and get distracted by everything that I think is wrong in the world. I'd probably lose some church members because I don't think you guys agree with me on everything. I like living in a world where I don't have to agree with everyone on everything. You know what we do agree on? Christ is Lord, and we're going to pursue Him. We're going to lay aside every distraction, every ounce of suffering, and we're going to run with endurance the race that has been given to us because I trust God's plan. 
more than the plan that I could come up with. Point number two. What time is it? Dear God. You guys stick with me. We're going to move a lot faster through these final points. We need to develop a theology of not just by running, but by responding. We need to develop a theology of suffering by responding to the discipline that we experience in our life. Because this is also true. Sometimes suffering in our lives comes about as a consequence of God calling you a son. God loves you so much that He's not going to let you go out and do whatever He wants. I said we might disagree on what some things are sin and what's not, or, what to, or how to live our lives or such things. I said as long as God's not brought us to unity, I'm going to trust Him and not me. But listen to this. God might just bring about circumstances in your life that tell you you were wrong. I told you a few weeks ago as a pastor, one of the prayers that I pray for people that I really, really care about is that God would break them. Why did I pray that prayer? Because I've lived my own life, and guess what? I found out I'm a stubborn person. If I'm stubborn, you must be more stubborn. Right? Maybe I'm more stubborn. Okay, you don't agree with that. That's fine. Come on, we're going to move through these points quickly, but I need you to stay alert. I'm stubborn. Sometimes I need God to break me just enough that I will turn back to Him, not just so I would rely on Him, but so that I would recognize that my life it needs to be oriented towards Him. Suffering's not just a reminder. Sometimes it's a wake-up call to get your life back in order, to make sure that you're pursuing God the way that you're supposed to. Because He doesn't just call you someone that has been brought into the family, but look at the end of this chapter. He calls you a son. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. God disciplines us. He wakes us up. Sometimes I have to do this with my children. Do you think I enjoy telling my son that he needs to focus? He's only two years old. What am I doing telling him he needs to not get distracted? I do it because I love him and he has a whole life set out before him. And if he doesn't get this figured out, he's going to have a hard life. Quit getting distracted. I believe Christians need to hear this, those that have been called sons and daughters by God. Sometimes you need to realize that maybe your dad needs to pop you on the back of the head. Now, wait a second. I'm pretty sure Arkansas DHS laws say that you're only allowed to hit children on the butt, not in the head. So on the butt. Maybe you don't hit your children. That's fine. I know some parents don't hit their children, and they do a phenomenal job. I don't know how they do it. My son's too stubborn. He needs a wake-up call every once in a while, and he doesn't listen. I'm not telling you how to discipline your children. Let's, let's stay focused. We've got to get through these points quickly, don't we? God calls you a son, and therefore he disciplines you, and he disciplines you in such a way that you would be able to wake up. I said I pray this prayer so that I, people's hearts would be broken so that they would come to know Christ, because this is the reality that we all must face. People will not change until the pain of changing is less than the pain of not changing. There's pain that comes about by admitting that you're wrong. 
that I'm a sinner, that I've designed worship in my own image instead of worshiping you, God, that I've been pursuing my own ideas and my own plan rather than you. God, that I put more focus on what I learned in Sunday school when I was 12 years old than what I've been reading in my Bible as I draw closer to you. Guys, that hurts. To say that should hurt. A part of confession should be met with contrition. My theology of suffering means that I'm going to respond. You know, ancient shepherds, the way that they would care for their sheep. You've all heard the parable of the lost sheep, the one that goes off, and which shepherd would not leave the 1,000 to go after, or the 99 to go after the one? You know what makes that parable so significant? You know what a shepherd did whenever a sheep ran off? He went and found it, and he took its legs, and he broke it. So everyone wearing their, I'm the one sheep, one lost sheep shirt, think about that. Your shepherd's coming to break your legs. Why did they do that? Such a cruel shepherd. He did that because to take that sheep back, he'd have to lift him up and put him on top of his shoulders and walk back carrying him. And when he got back to the pasture with the other 99 sheep, that sheep would have to stay right next to the shepherd the whole time and know that this is my provision. This is where goodness comes from. This is the one that loves me. This is the one that's taking care of me. So those of you that were offended when I admitted that I pray that God would break you every once in a while, know this, I love you enough to do that. And I love you enough to stand by you while you're enduring that. I'm not talking about rubbing it in and say, this is what I was praying for. Your life's falling apart. I knew this was coming in your life and I'm so glad. It breaks my heart with yours. to walk with you and hold your hand and to endure such suffering. And I pray that if you were a mature Christian, that you developed a theology of suffering, that you would run through such distractions, that you would also respond when it's evident that God's trying to redirect you. That you would respond. Well, finally, loved ones, my last point. Because I simply don't have time to finish out this point. We need to develop a theology of suffering by rallying together. Not just running, not just responding, but by rallying together. This isn't just an individual walk in the park. God's not just concerned about breaking your legs, but He's coming back for His bride. God's concerned with His church. Which means we can't just respond as individuals, but we must respond as a church in a corporate sense that we must rally together, developing a theology of suffering by rallying with other Christians, by enduring with them, by running with them, by responding with them. And what do I mean by rallying? But watch this. Making sure that our life is in correct order. You know when a ship would pull into shore... A boat comes into shore and it looks at the dock. Do you know how they pull in at night? I don't know if you know this, because I just found out. There's a light on the end of the dock and they aim for that light. Well, how do they make sure that they're not coming from the wrong direction? Because there's another light at the end on land. 
And that would tell them which direction they were heading. The captain's job when navigating a ship at night is to make sure that the light on their boat, the light on the dock, and the light that's ahead of them would all be in order. To rally around who Christ is, is not just to look at where we need to be in responding to the discipline in our life, that we would respond in such a way and come back and live my life the way that I'm supposed to. Get to where I am to where I need to be. But to look beyond that and to look at the glory of heaven that awaits us in a world that is not encumbered by sin. In developing a theology of suffering, we find in verse 12, our encouragement says, because God disciplines you, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Stand up for God and recognize that He cares for you and be strengthened so that you can strengthen one another. Let's not forget Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stand up, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather may be healed. Christians running the race, responding to God's will, rallying around Him, should be looking around them at the Christians that they are running with. In our world today, the truth is, I see a lot of lame ducks running marathons. Dislocated shoulders, people running crippled. Christians that need to be made mature so that the kingdom of God may come through them. Rally together, lift your drooping hands, and strengthen your weak knees. What does this mean, loved ones? It means that we have a responsibility to practice discipline amongst ourselves. Now, this is a scary thought for many because, well, I believe the reason that it's scary for many is we've never seen a good example of church discipline. We've heard about it. We kind of understand it. We realize Jesus said something about it in Matthew 18, but we're really not sure what to do with it. What do you mean as a church you're supposed to practice discipline? You go to a brother, if you know that he's sinning, one-on-one. If he doesn't respond to you, go and take somebody else with you. If he doesn't respond to the two or three of you, then take it before the church. And then what's the last step? If the whole church isn't able to bring somebody to restoration, what's the next step? We're afraid of it, aren't we? You tell them they're no longer a part of the church. I hear people talking about church discipline, and normally the response that they have is, oh, that'll really hurt a church. You know what my counter-argument is? You know what'll really hurt a church? Not practicing church discipline. Letting people wander around in blatant sin and not helping them. Rally together that you might lift your drooping hands. When you see somebody running the race towards the end of life or the return of Christ, and you see them walking with a limp, tell them, just like a rehab specialist would, the correct way to walk is heel-toe, heel-toe. It would hurt a lot less if you were less stubborn, and you would put your feet in order the way that you are supposed to. 
That's church discipline. Yeah, the end of church discipline is excommunication. Well, that's painful. But guess what? If we get all the way to that point, we really need to be sure that we've done all of the other levels of church discipline the correct way, pursuing restoration. Would you be surprised to know that we've practiced church discipline in this church? Would you be surprised that since the beginning of this year, I have practiced church discipline with four church members. You want to know a secret? I don't think they even realize it. Because I didn't begin by saying this is church discipline step one, and if you don't respond the correct way to what I'm telling you, I'll kick you out of the church. The way I started was, I see that something is the matter. And I want to be restored with you as if there was never a problem. What do I need to do to make things right? I've not seen church discipline ever go beyond that. Not once. Those four times in the past year is just an example locally. When I was a pastor, associate pastor at a church in Rogers... I put my own pastor under church discipline. Did you know that? I put my own pastor under church discipline. I asked him to come to dinner with me. I bought his meal. That's what you should do. Just kidding. And I told him that he greatly offended me, and I believe what he did was wrong. I turned to the Word of God and I showed him that what I thought he did was wrong. And he immediately admitted to me that I was right. And he asked for me to forgive him. And I said, you don't even have to ask. That's church discipline. You're telling me that from that kind of a situation, the church is going to be destroyed? When you have church members interacting with each other on that kind of a personal level... Not only are those members going to be stronger, not only is the church going to be stronger because they have an interdependence among each other, but the church is going to be vibrant and excel for the kingdom of God because there aren't secrets that are causing inviting among each other. I have a theology of suffering. I believe the reason we suffer at the hands of people that we care about is because they're, this is going to surprise some of you, because they're sinners. I believe the reason that I hurt you, the reason that you hurt each other, is because you're all sinners in need of a Savior who's restoring you. Not just giving you an example so that you can endure until the end and quit being distracted so that you can be concerned about the things that actually matter, but so that you can draw nearer to God on your time at earth, walking with Him as Enoch did by faith. I believe the reason that we should respond to discipline is because we realize that we are in need of discipline. The only people who say they don't need discipline are the people that are so arrogant that think that they're right about everything. Such people do not have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, convicting them of sin. It is not possible to walk with God and to have that amount of arrogance. Maybe I'm wrong. 
Just doesn't make sense to me, though. We can be wrong about a lot. I need someone to tell me when I'm wrong. Because I know what I know, and I don't know what I don't know. Right? I need to rally together because any moving party is only as fast as the slowest member. Unless we're going to leave people in the dust behind us and carry onward so that the strong can excel, we are as slow as our slowest member. We are as weak as our weakest member. We are as mature as the most immature among us. So with the proper theology of suffering, I realize that I need to rally around those that are more immature than I am, that I might correct them when they need it. You guys see in the picture? When we have a proper theology of suffering, we run with endurance the race that is set before us, we respond to God the way that we are supposed to, and we rally together. Are you ready to do that? We're about to have a song of invitation. I've preached long enough. I think my words have gone as far as they possibly can. My intellect has preached as best as it possibly can. You know what? It's time for me to shut up. Because the Holy Spirit of God is the one that's going to speak to our hearts in responding to this. Are you ready to respond? Are we ready to stand up and to praise God, to worship Him the way that He's commanded as a church, singing our hearts out? Praying like we've never prayed before. Looking from shoulder to shoulder at the people that we're sitting alongside, praying for them. Praying that the church would respond. Would you stand as we prepare to sing? Our Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you for your word. And God, as difficult as it is, I thank you that you love me as a son, that you do not call me an illegitimate child. I've been called that enough in my life. Father, I know that you are the, not just the, the you're the orchestrator, God. You, you knew that I was going to be born to a father that would abandon me. You knew that I'd be adopted by a dad that would abuse me. And you knew that I would come to a saving relationship with you. You knew that through my faith that I would share the faith with my wife. God, that you'd give us two children. God, you restored my suffering and gave it a purpose. And I long for the time that I will be able to see my purpose and glory with you and I'll be able to sing with you. God, I ask that you'd be with those who are suffering today. That you would ease their broken hearts. That you would give them hope for the future and encouragement for tomorrow. But most important, God, I pray that if anyone has never placed their faith in you, that they would come to know you, Lord. I pray that as we sing this song, we would respond to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Number 300.